Coming up on the Inside Indiana Business Television podcast, we check in with Governor Holcomb during his overseas trip, Indyland's another major sporting event, an abandoned coal mine gets a spirited new life, defense manufacturing takes center stage in Northeast Indiana, Purdue scientists want to get you through traffic more safely, Riley Hospital for Children hopes a big donation makes a big difference, we spotlight a unique approach to buying out companies, and we look at what's coming up in the IBJ this week. Welcome to the Inside Indiana Business Television Podcast. I'm Andy Ober. Governor Holcomb is looking to bring jobs and investment back to Indiana from Central Europe and the Middle East. That's the goal of an economic development mission he's leading. Holcomb joined Inside Indiana Business host Gary Dick from Tel Aviv, Israel. We were one of the few television media outlets to talk with the governor from Tel Aviv. He had just touched down there, and he shared his take on economic opportunities, the upcoming global summit in Indiana, and the impact the Russian war in Ukraine is having on the region. Okay, Slovakia, the first part of the trip. Uh, Talk, if you will, big takeaway, a major takeaway from that uh, that portion of the trip. Well, the... the that part of the world is overwhelmed by the, the exodus of civilians and, and right. mostly women and their children. And so that has a huge overwhelming effect on mental health services, health services, education. You know, a lot of these kids, 280,000 um, have gone from Ukraine to Slovakia alone, about about 50,000 in the first four days. There's They, pre- they predict about 40,000 are still there. Um, and, and so they all need services and they came off of COVID and their education was disrupted for a couple years as it ebbed and flowed. And now they're into a, a war effort. And, and this is going to require um, the world standing up, not just to help, but also rejecting um, Putin's war machine. Yeah. How, how can Indiana play a role in that uh, briefly, if you could? Well, cer- certainly we can send supplies. You know, we, we asked. We didn't want to be a burden, and we asked what they needed, um, Slovakia included, Ukraine and Slovakia. You know, to have a, a company like Eli Lilly headquartered in Indiana who's supplying insulin, um, that's a huge deal. Uh, we have hospitals that are sending supplies. We can send, you know, we took over athletic equipment and art because these kids are sitting around right now waiting on how to plug back in to get their education. So there, there are a number of, we've met with NGOs, people in need, Penn, and, and they're clearly focused on making sure that the neighboring countries have the resources that they need to kind of fill those gaps. And so they are deeply appreciated, appreciative of everything Hoosiers and Americans at large uh, are doing. Business, uh, economic development, a big piece of, of this trip, uh, Trip, obviously. Uh, you are in Israel. I know after this interview, I'm going to go right into a meeting with uh, Durrell Group, Durrell Energy, uh, which a company, an Israeli-based company, uh, putting together uh, one of the largest solar projects in the entire country uh, in northwest Indiana. Yeah, here we are again. I just had met with Dory, the, the CEO of the company, and uh, not too long ago, before they made their announcement here here in Jaffa, and uh, it's it's great to be back. This feels this is you know Israel is kind of a second home, if you will, to whether you've been here or not, to millions of people around the world, and it's starting to feel like a second home to me too, just because of the friendships and the partnerships and the investment that Indiana's making over here and they are making in our state. 
And where we really, you know, where we really align is this is an innovation nation. They're known as a startup nation where small businesses grow into uh, organizations that make a huge impact on bettering lives around the world, not just in Israel. And, and for us to partner on, um, on the largest solar farm in America to date, this is, this is pretty special because it shows that we're a leader in that renewable energy transition. But yeah. we'll also be talking uh, to folks while we're here about AI and quantum computing and machine learning, robotics, everything that goes into helping a business um, not just start up, um, but grow and uh, really have a positive impact on on our lives, our communities, and and the world at large. So pretty pretty exciting uh, trip uh, next few days ahead, and then we'll be we'll be right back home. By the way, everywhere we've gone, we've been talking about the Global Economic Summit, which has really turned into a big deal. This is something that we'll host right before the Indy 500. We're getting a tremendous response. Uh, we'll have the attendees, the quality attendees that are going to be there. This is a, this is not just theoretical conversations. This is about solutions that are going to help change business and um, and and the way we live our lives, taking into account everything that's going on. And you know, you you wake up and you wonder what's next coming off of COVID and Ukraine and Russia's invasion, and we have to be prepared for those things. So these partnerships critically important. Uh, enhanced relationships certainly being made there on this trip. Can we expect uh, at the end of this trip any announcements any any uh, uh, when it comes to jobs and investment? Well, I, I won't date stamp anything, but but we're bullish. Look, we've we've had a extremely strong first quarter in comparison to last year, where we set a lot of records at the IEDC. We're already um, knocking on some of those records, and we're we're on a path that is as hot as I've ever seen it. And so, yes, um, I'm, I'm confident uh, that there will be more good news that comes out of Israel and Indiana as we continue to chart our, our course together. Governor Eric Holcomb from Israel. How big is Indiana's tie with Israel? Well, the state is the fourth largest exporter to Israel in the Midwest, the 19th largest in the country. After almost every major sporting event held in Indianapolis, the question becomes, what's next? The answer this time is the 2024 USA Olympic Swim Trials. USA Swimming Chief Commercial Officer Shana Ferguson spoke with Bill Benner on Inside Indiana Sports. We mentioned in the opening, 1924, the Olympic Trials were here. It's been here six times since. Uh, as you began to think, uh, USA Swimming, about moving this grand event to the next level, uh, what were the factors that moved Indy to the forefront? Well, certainly there's something poetic about us coming back 100 years later from the 1924 trials that named a team to head to Paris in 1924. Certainly um, there was something lovely about us doing that again in, with an Indianapolis trials heading to Paris in 2024, but that truly wasn't the only factor as you know, Indianapolis is just an incredible, incredible city all around, particularly for sport and particularly for really important sport. And for us, the Olympic trials is our biggest meet. It really is. It's our biggest domestic meet, arguably the fastest meet really on the globe because there are quite a few, quite a few Americans who won't make the Olympic team who would make the Olympic team for other countries. 
Um, so it's a big meet. It is, it is really our focus every four years. Indianapolis is a phenomenal city for sport, for hospitality, and certainly in the professionalism with which they, um, they host their events. That was a big consideration for us. The bid was fantastic. The bid from the other finalist cities were fantastic as well, but Indianapolis was a leader for us from the get-go. Um, we do quite a few meets in Indianapolis. I'm not there right now. As you mentioned, I'm in San Antonio, but we do quite a few meets in Indianapolis throughout the years and really couldn't ask for a better host city, host committee. Indiana swimming is quite important as well. So we're just, at, you know, it, it was an easy decision for us, quite frankly, and that Indianapolis is going to be a great home for us in 2024. Shane, we've got a minute, about a minute to, uh, to talk about this is a going to be much more than a swim meet, as it always is, but it's going to be a festival. I mean, so many events taking place uh, outside of uh, Lucas Oil Stadium and, and just, a again, an, an aqua zone, uh, a lot of other events. Yeah, we're excited about the possibilities. The meet itself will last nine days and nine nights, and that's a long time for a swim meet. So there'll be plenty of other things for the fans coming in for the meet to do. We will indeed have about 100,000 square feet of a Toyota Aqua Zone, which is similar to fan fests people have attended for other sporting events. And we'll have a USA Swimming House, which will be a hospitality area, certainly for friends and family to come and put their feet up for, for a little bit of time in between the races and after the races. Our hope is to really incite the entire region of Indianapolis to, to be excited about swimming, to come and join in this festival with us. You don't necessarily need tickets to the event to be a part of the celebration. We hope you'll want to come into Lucas Oil Stadium to see the event, but there'll be plenty of things happening in and around the stadium for, for fans to enjoy. Well, Shana Ferguson, the Chief Commercial Officer of USA Swimming, we certainly uh, appreciate you joining us on the program. We can't wait for 2024. This will be spectacular. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much. An old abandoned coal mine could become a gold mine. Around Indiana reporter Mary Rachel Redmond brings us the story of how a Greene County mine is being transformed into a farm-to-bottle distillery. My trip to the former Landry mine in Jasonville last year remains one of my all-time favorites. It's got just about everything you'd want in a story. More jobs for struggling community, helping the environment, and quite literally transforming coal waste into a place that will soon be the taste of coal craft spirits. Mid-19th century Indiana. The Wabash Valley booming with black gold. It supplied a majority of our power in the region, basically the energy that all of us used in Indianapolis for many years. While coal remains king in Indiana, it's not a question of if, but when Hoosier mines are permanently shuttered, like this former Landry mine in Jasonville. This is where the former coal mine was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the guys, uh, they would, would enter the mine about 15 feet below that water. So looking around, I see up over here, now that looks like coal to me. Mm -hmm. That is. So that was the, there was two coal seams here. This mine alone provided over 100 jobs. The number of coal mines that have went bankrupt in the last three years and the number of people that have lost jobs, what we wanted to do is bring a real solution to a real problem. That solution? A farm-to-table craft distillery. It looks silly ahead of us. Uh -huh. That's all going to be flat? It'll, it'll all be flat. 
The co-founders of Land Betterment Corp. gave me a tour of the 22-acre property that they acquired over a year ago from a defunct New York hedge fund. So this old material is just left, not in the right state. You're supposed to do environmental cleanup as you mine coal. You have potential for acid water in the downstreams. You have afflicted wildlife. Um, and more importantly, the community can never use a property again. When they walked away, not only was there post-mining cleanup needed, there's five years of excess debris we had to go through. So we'll, we'll move all that to its proper location, which is what they're doing right now with the dozer and our tractor. At the end of the day, our goal is to come in here and clean it up. Not only clean up the environmental problems, but also the job and the tax base problems that the community has. Former coal miners are already chomping at the bit. Meet Joe Wright. He spent the last decade mining at this very site and is grateful for the opportunity. Came, worked in the warehouse, and then went and worked underground for four or five years. It was a, definitely a downturn for the community, but, you know, um, hopefully this project will bring them back. And, uh, you know, it's different jobs, but it's it's still jobs. It'll, it'll continue my, my employment, so... <laughs> That's good for me and my family. Not every community has the type of product that fits that industry. Think about a former coal miner. They are great at troubleshooting, electrical circuitry, heavy machinery. A distillery is not that different. So we want the community to support itself, foster new innovation and new businesses, and make folks proud again for their local communities and know that they can make a better life for themselves and their families right where they live. The guys at Land Betterment tell me the expected grand opening will be next spring of 2023. So get excited for that there in Jasonville. Defense manufacturing is big business in Indiana. However, Northeast Indiana leaders want more jobs and more investments. Third District State Representative Jim Banks came on the show to talk about the Northeast Indiana Defense Summit. You know, I mentioned those numbers, a robust defense uh, industry, but it's not what it once was. It's, it's down from what it once was uh, a number of years ago in northeast Indiana. Yeah, that's right. Around 2010, we had nearly twice as many defense-related jobs in northeast Indiana as what we do today. So, but, but today, the good news is that we're seeing the defense industrial base and those jobs start to regrow again. We have a number of great companies in Northeast Indiana, L3 Harris, Raytheon, BAE, General Dynamics. Uh, we make sauna buoys in Columbia City, my hometown, uh, Ultra Electronics. We make Humvees just outside of my district in Elkhart. So we have a good footprint, uh, but now is the time to seize upon the growing defense budgets that Congress is passing to innovate and manufacture some of the innovative technologies that our military is creating uh, so that we can compete with our adversaries now and in the future. And I, that's what my summit is geared toward focusing on. Well, let's talk about this summit because there are some big names you have uh, lined up, uh, big political names. You've got uh, the CEO of AM General, Paul Merlucky. You've got some big, uh, some firepower heading in April 11th to Fort Wayne. Yeah, I do. Uh, Palmer Lucky, uh, for example, uh, founded Oculus. Uh, now he's the founder of Andural, which is a new startup, a major defense company that's focused on drones and artificial intelligence. Uh, you talked about the CEO of AM General, a very important company to Indiana, making the Humvees. 
But I also have Mike Rogers, who's currently the Republican ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. And as you know, there's a good chance Republicans take back the majority after this upcoming midterm election. When we do, Mike Rogers will be chairman, the powerful chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. This is this is his second visit to Fort Wayne in the last year to come and see what we have to offer in our region. I have a couple of authors of yep. books as well. Uh, Jacob Helberg, The Wires of War, mm-hmm. and Jerry Hendrick coming to talk about the Navy. And we're going we're gonna to have a great day of conversation about what Northeast Indiana can do even better. Hey, you only have 30 seconds, uh, Congressman. But as you look at the opportunity here, in particular for Northeast Indiana uh, going forward, how significant, in your view, is the potential uh, for Northeast Indiana in this sector? I'm excited about Fort Wayne and Northeast Indiana. The whole region is growing, but you can't go to downtown Fort Wayne today and not see the difference over the past 10 years. The riverfront development, new buildings downtown is exciting. The ballpark, what we have to offer is exciting, and that's why I I enjoy bringing leaders from elsewhere to come and see how great Fort Wayne is and, and everything that's going on there because it's a great place to attract new jobs and investment. All right, the Defense Summit, uh, April 11, Ivy Tech on North Anthony Boulevard there in Fort Wayne. Congressman Jim B- uh, Banks coming to us from Washington. Thank you for joining us. We'll look forward to covering the event. Thank you. Remember, you can catch Inside Indiana Business Television on stations throughout the state every weekend. Head to InsideIndianaBusiness.com to check listings. When you see a yellow light, do you slow down to a stop or gun it and try to beat the red? A new high-tech tool designed by Purdue University scientists and the Indiana Department of Transportation could help you get through those intersections more safely. Howell Lee with Purdue's Lyle School of Civil Engineering joined us with more. You are in front of a traffic signal cabinet, uh, essentially. What, what, what are you, uh, what's involved? These are, these are at all the intersections, right? Yes, yeah, so essentially uh, one of these things is in uh, pretty much every single intersection, basically it's the brains of the, of the operation. It decides the timings of each uh, movement of the intersection, as well as a bunch of relays that actually sends the, uh, the power out to each of the light bulbs at, at the traffic signal. Okay, and I know that's the uh, dead on, uh, zeroed in on where you've been researching for several years now on technology that can help uh, eliminate uh, some of these uh, accidents, serious accidents, as the the light turns yellow. And you talk about the dilemma zone. Uh, That's kind of where you're focused and where the technology is focused. That's correct. And uh, Purdue's been working with the Indiana Department of Transportation in this area for over 20 years now. Essentially, in the traffic signals um, in Indiana in particular, as we know, uh, we have a lot of high-speed uh, roadways in Indiana that are signalized, that have a traffic signal. So you may be traveling down the road at 50, 55 miles an hour, and you come up to one of these intersections, and about the distance of a football field away, you see a yellow light come on. Right, it's a yellow light, and you and you're at speed, so you don't know whether you should hit the brakes really hard. And you know, 90% of drivers take about two and a half seconds to react to that uh, change in, in the signal. So you hit the brakes, uh, you you may be in, in be in for a really hard stop. Yeah. Uh, if you don't hit the brakes and you decide to cruise through, because you're at such a, a far away distance and at great speed. Um, you still may not be able to clear the intersection, so you still might go through on red. 
So yeah. that's a danger, and that's what we call the dilemma zone. Yeah, hey, it, 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 as best you can, uh, in layman's terms, how does your technology solve this issue and make potentially make uh, these intersections more safe? Sure. So essentially, when we're talking about a vehicle approaching an intersection, we can either give it more green, or if we know that the vehicle is going to hit a red light pretty soon, right? we might just show the yellow indication a little bit earlier. So you might see the yellow, you know, maybe you would have seen it at uh, 300 feet, maybe a football field away. And that point, it's pretty dangerous, right? But if you get to see that same yellow indication a thousand feet away, you have a long ways to go before you get to that intersection. So you might just let your foot off the accelerator and just cruise until you get there. And by the time you get there, um, the side street may have already cleared yeah. and you're on your way. Yeah. Hey, hey uh, tell, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, are you ready to go to market uh, with this? This is uh, really a, a high tech solution, if you will. What uh, ready to go to market and how substantially do you think you could perhaps reduce accidents? Right. So in terms of going to market, technology is there. The logic and the programming is there. Um, it's a matter of uh, federal and state regulators the uh, automotive industry, as well as the intelligent transportation systems uh, sector, all working together. Um, so we did a test in Tippecanoe County on US 231 and County Road 500 South. And we found that uh, it's possible to reduce the heavy vehicle dilemma zone incursions by up to a third. Wow. More innovation coming out of Purdue University. Howell Lee, a researcher at Purdue. Uh, fascinating uh, technology. We look forward to watching uh, your progress on it. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Gary. All right. Riley Hospital for Children is getting a big donation that could make a big difference. The target is the most common form of muscular dystrophy. Riley Children's Foundation CEO Liz Elkis joined Kylie Valletta in the business of health. It's a great story. Let's talk first about Duchenne. Give us a snapshot of the disease and explain just how devastating it can be for patients. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a genetic disorder characterized by progressive weakness of the skeletal, heart, and lung muscles. It primarily affects males and is typically diagnosed by age five. Today, most patients with Duchenne ultimately die from heart muscle weakness leading to heart failure. Okay, and I understand that typically people live into their 30s and 40s today, but we'll talk more about the research in a little bit. This gift is interesting. It comes from a family right here in Indiana who has a personal connection to Duchenne. So tell us just a little bit about their vision for this $5 million gift. This family is remarkable. Uh, this is a tremendous gift from the Ackerman and Nikoloff family and it aims to make Riley a one-stop shop for Duchenne patients and families. This will ensure that no one needs to leave Indiana for care. All right, and one uh, benefit of this gift is going to be an immediate impact on care. It was so interesting, I learned these kids often have to see up to 10 specialists for their treatment. So explain how this gift is going to help simplify that process for families. For families impacted by Duchenne, a trip to the hospital means navigating multiple specialties and numerous appointments. Care coordinators make all the difference in the patient experience. So this gift will enable us to go from having one care coordinator to three, thereby serving our patients and families. 
It is fantastic. And the gift also allows Riley to establish a Duchenne Family Service Program, basically a concierge service to coordinate transportation, identify hotels, and make accommodations to meet a child's medical needs. In short, they assist with planning to ease the burden on families. These services by the Riley team will be provided free of charge. Alongside the growth of the program, Riley has formally applied to be a parent project muscular dystrophy care center. This stamp of approval is important because it signals to parents their children can get the very best care in the country right here at Riley. And a big future impact of this money as we look forward is how it's going to impact research. And you already mentioned some heart complications. Uh, it's the number one cause of death uh, for people with Duchenne. So explain how these dollars are really going to forward research in the area of the heart. At Riley, Dr. Larry Markham, Chief of Pediatric Cardiology, is focusing his research on slowing and preventing fibrosis of the heart through precision medicine. Dr. Markham's goal is to identify potential therapies and advance two or three treatments to clinical trials in the next few years. It's also important to note that U.S. News and World Report ranks Riley in the top five pediatric cardi cardiology programs in the nation and the number one program in the Midwest. Looking ahead, the focus is on curing patients by fixing the root cause of Duchenne through the acceleration of gene therapy. This research is led by Dr. Roland Herzog, who is an internationally recognized expert in the field. And I know Duchenne is a devastating disease, uh, no cure for it at this point. Um, but just to wrap up here, on only a few seconds left. You say big picture, this gift really is about optimism. Can you explain what you mean by that? Absolutely, it's all about optimism. For years, the medical community has made incremental improvements in the care of boys and young men with Duchenne. Our vision is to take a dramatic leap forward through research, while at the same time making a meaningful impact on access to care. The Ackerman and Nikolov Family Philanthropic Commitment of $5 million will serve as a powerful catalyst to help elevate our already stellar Duchenne program and make it a national model. This shows how a family with the capacity to give can change the outcome for so many. That's the beauty of philanthropy. All right, Elizabeth, excited to see this money make a difference at Riley. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Connie Bond Stewart has been with PNC for 41 years and has been regional president for PNC in central and southern Indiana since 2011. This month, she's set to retire. Stewart joined us with a look back and a look ahead. 40 plus years with the same bank is amazing. So you were recruited uh, right out of IU to go to Pittsburgh, right? Exactly. Yeah, in 1980, um, they recruited me and I thought, well, I'll go to Pittsburgh for a year and then I'll come back to my home state. Um, never dreaming that I would stay with the same organization for so long. Yeah, so many uh, things you've accomplished over those years, but I think it's interesting in those early years, you were instrumental in establishing the commercial, it was the commercial real estate division uh, of the bank, and certainly very much a male-dominated industry. Banking itself was male-dominated, but commercial real estate especially. What was that like? Well, I didn't really establish the division, but I opened PNC's first office in Washington, D.C., and, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I stayed with the bank. I initially was in corporate banking for my first seven years. And then I um, expressed an interest in moving to D.C. when I knew that they were going to open up an office. And it so happened my fiancé lived there. Uh-huh, very and, good. And um, so, you know, I was presented with that opportunity. Um, and 
really all along the way. You know, the reason I stayed with the bank for so long is I found that PNC was supportive mm -hmm. of me. It was an inclusive environment. Um, one story I'll share with you. Um, early in my career, after I came out of the management training program um, in 81, the head of corporate banking, Jim Rohr, who went on to become our CEO, mm -hmm. pulled me aside one day in his office. He said, you know, we're having a corporate golf outing for our clients. And he said, they'll let you on the golf course, but they won't let women in the clubhouse for dinner. And so I just looked at him. I said, well, I'm the rookie, mm -hmm. but when I have my own account responsibility, I would hope that I might be included. He didn't say another word. Next thing you know, the dinner was at a different club. Ah. And, yeah. you know, it just sent um, such a positive message to me about the fact that they were committed to helping me further my career. They wanted me to stay with the company. Mm -hmm. And um, that resonated. And obviously, I'm talking about it today. Yeah. And I've just seen that um, focus on helping the employees with their career development and making an intentional diversification of our workforce so that our employees look like the face of our customers mm -hmm. and also so that we keep people long term. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to recruit somebody and lose them after you invest in them. Right. And so it's a very intentional diversification and it makes it a more rewarding place to work. You put a real uh, focus on community involvement uh, in a number of areas, in particular early uh, education, early yes. childhood education, a big focus of the bank as well. But you've been out front as a leader uh, in that initiative here in Indianapolis and throughout the state. Why is that so important? It's important to give back to the communities where you live and work. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we did is we tried to identify an area of need where we could have an impact too because we gave to a lot of initiatives, but no one that we were identified with. Mm -hmm. And so in 2004, we decided that this was an area of real importance because every child should have the opportunity to high quality in learning and mm -hmm. care environment. And at the most formative stage of the brain, when the child is just developing from that birth to five mm -hmm. age range, there were many children that were missing out. Um, because they didn't have a quality environment. And so we decided to invest in that, both with grants, volunteerism, and advocacy. And so, for example, when I moved here in 2011, um, you know, I, United Way and Early Learning Indiana were leading on this. Um, and we, the business community started talking. Mm -hmm. How can we expand the access of children, particularly children in low and moderate income areas, mm -hmm so that they can have access to the same environment as you know all children who enter school. And um, so we started out with an Indy for Pre-K program, and that was a pilot that led to the state's support of an early childhood program to give more children access. Mm -hmm. And um, it's focused on high quality, mm -hmm. it, and it's not just about the academics, although those are important, yeah. but it's also about social emotional development so that when a child enters kindergarten, they're ready to learn and be yep. successful instead of falling behind. Yep. 40 plus years at PNC. Connie, thanks so much for joining us. Very happy to hear you're going to continue your community service as well as do a little traveling going forward. So best luck, uh, best of luck in that next chapter. Thank you, Gary. All right. A Carmel company says it has a unique take on the business of buying out companies. The difference, a potential silver lining for employees. Empowered Ventures president and CEO Chris Fredericks came on the show with more. Okay, let's talk about this model, this acquisition model, because it really is centered around employees, mm -hmm. uh, I think, and, and making them uh, 
really employee owners. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so back in 2010, I was part of a company, TVF, out of Carmel, Indiana, and we went through an ESOP conversion then. Uh, I led that process for the founding owner who had started the business in the 70s. And since then, we've had just a tremendous experience as an employee-owned company. And you know, in 2020, we decided to launch a new uh, model for acquisitions, mm -hmm. and, and Empowered Ventures was kind of the result of that. Yeah, so uh, you launched again in, tw in 2020, and again, no traditional owners or investors. How, how, do, how does it work? I mean, it sounds like, you know, how, how could something like that work? Right, yeah, so an ESOP is, um, you know, a form of employee ownership mm -hmm. that actually is, is fairly widespread throughout the country. Um, so it's a retirement plan that owns the business. And there's kind of a governance structure in place where we have a, a, a public a board of directors that I report to, um, but all the employees are owners through, through their retirement plan, essentially. So every year, everyone receives uh, an allocation of shares mm -hmm. and they receive the, the benefit of the business um, as it grows in value. And when they leave the company, they'll actually receive you know sizable checks yeah. for their, their ownership. So, so how do you vet companies, as I understand it, your first two companies, one was, I think, in Ohio and one, one here in Indiana. Yeah, we've bought two companies so far under the Empowered Ventures model. So now we have three total companies in our group. Um, and to vet new companies, what we're really looking for is a long history of success. Um, we're looking at mid, in the Midwest, B2B type companies. Um, but the, the real key is we're looking for ownership, usually family ownership that cares a lot about the employees, the customers, and the future of the business. And they're just not quite yet comfortable with you know, their options in terms of who they wanna sell the business to and who they're gonna trust the future of their business with. Um, so for us, that's gonna be the key differentiator. So and again, you're out. looking for yep. successful companies, not looking to necessarily turn around uh, a company. That's right, no, we're not looking to turn around any businesses. We are really excited when a company has you know, multiple decades of success mm -hmm. that they, and they've got a secret sauce that they wanna maintain. Mm -hmm. We don't wanna come in and change anything about what's really working so well for the company. Um, but we, we seek to kind of provide a stewardship model mm -hmm. and see that continue for multiple decades to yeah, come. And you, you've got some ambitious plans, uh, too, uh, looking to deploy 40 to $60 million over the next five years. That's right. Yeah. So we're excited to share that publicly for the first time. Um, we finance our acquisitions with our own balance sheet. Um, with our cash and our cash flow and, and a great financing relationship. But yeah, we're excited to look for more companies and, and have set aside 40 to 60 million wow. to, to do that. Chris Fredericks is the president and CEO of Empowered uh, Ventures, a different acquisition model, one that uh, starting out with some good success. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. All right. And finally this week, we're seeing a building boom in Broad Ripple and what's going on at New Fields a year after a major controversy. We talked about those stories and more with Leslie Weidenbenner with our partners at the IBJ. Some of the headline stories this week, uh, this weekend in the IBJ, again, new fields, that, uh, that controversy one year later, Broad Ripple, a building boom uh, is, uh, is happening there. And also Lilly Endowment selling some stock. But as we begin this week, there's been a lot of buzz about a potential uh, major development in Boone County. Leslie, I know you guys have some fresh details. Yeah, absolutely. So the, there are tons of rumors up in Boone County about who's been trying to buy a lot of farmland up there. We were able to find out that it's actually the Indiana Economic Development Corporation and the state. They have formed a corporation called IIP LLC. 
and uh, they're looking to buy up land to create maybe a massive tech park. Yeah, very good. That's a developing story uh, that will be interesting to watch uh, indeed. I mentioned new fields, uh, certainly a big controversy a year ago. You're doing you have an update this week. Yeah, it's been one year since the uh, president or CEO of Newfield stepped down after some questions about racial language in a job description. And since then, the museum has been looking for a new CEO and they are expecting to name a new leader sometime this summer or fall. And in the meantime, they're really trying to take some steps to solve some of the both real issues and perception issues they have. You know, one of the areas where they're really focusing is buying some art from marginalized artists that that should make some difference. Uh, Broad Ripple, a popular place here in Indianapolis and uh, about to really uh, engage in a big building boom. There's a lot going on in Broad Ripple right now. For example, there's a big development going in the Kroger at the former Kroger store that's been vacant for a while. And then in addition to that, there's going to be like a year long project to upgrade the main road through Broad Ripple to uh, fix some of the drainage issues. There's going to be a new trail, uh, some improvements to the bridge. So there's a lot going on there. And of course, that means that for a little while, at least, it's going to be a little harder for people to get around in Broad Ripple. Well, going to be a busy place, uh, busier than normal, I guess, uh, indeed, with construction. And finally, uh, Leslie, Lilly Endowment, such an important organization, selling stock. Well, you know, the Lilly Endowment, its assets are 90% in Eli Lilly and company stock. And Eli Lilly and company stock has been surging over the past year. As a result, the endowment's assets are too which means they have to give away more money. And to do that, they have to sell some stock. So I think in March alone, they've sold something like 1.8 million shares of Lilly stock. Lots of great stories in this week's uh, IBJ. Leslie Widenbenner, as always, have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Gary. All right. That wraps up this week's Inside Indiana Business television podcast. Remember, you can find all of this week's TV segments, as well as the top business news from throughout the state, at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our platform of free e-newsletters. This is Andy Ober for Inside Indiana Business.